0: Well, take your Bible and turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, we're going to do a little bit in chapter 32 and in 30, but 31 is a good place you'll be really close to where we need to be. Before I really get started this evening, we're kind of coming to the close of... This is our fourth little mini-series in the Millennium Series, but we're really coming to the close of what I would call the introductory series. And as I mentioned a couple of months ago when we got started with this, one of the reasons we're taking so much time on this is that premillennialism, a belief in the literal hermeneutic, the grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, the belief that the kingdom of God through Christ has yet to come, this is absolutely under attack. And it really is under attack in in very, uh, I I almost might put it, social media type ways. With little pithy statements that are unproven on social media, in articles here and there. All kinds of things that we've tried to um, disprove and and to look against and to to understand. Uh, For example, uh, you can find dozens and dozens of covenant theology resources that make this statement that dispensationalism and premillennialism basically began in the 19th century with John Nelson Darby. And so we spent several weeks disproving that, that that is absolutely false. And so what you have are theologians just quoting each other without actually doing research and actually looking into this. And so the reason we've taken now, I believe, about 15 messages just to introduce how we understand the millennium is because we have to stand for the truth and the only way to stand for truth is to dispel lies and to really dig deeply but beginning in in 2 weeks when we uh, after steadfast we're going to start a new series called the Old Testament witnesses and this is for the first time actually we we've referenced hundreds of different passages already But I've chosen about 19 or 20 of the most important Old Testament passages and we're going to take them one at a time. What does this passage say? What does this one say? And I just want you to see that the Bible overwhelmingly teaches us to look forward to the coming of Christ. And so we'll get to not flip around quite so much as we have in these series now. But for tonight, we want to finish looking at the covenants and how that's part of a foundational understanding of the millennium. There's a popular saying, and I hear this all the time in American evangelicalism, it's just all about Jesus. It's just all about Jesus, or I just want to fellowship with Jesus. And that sounds very pious, it sounds very holy, it sounds very loving and gentle and kind. It's a popular sentiment in broad evangelical circles, and it's growing broader in recent years with movements that are designed to strip Christians of any inconvenient encumbrances, things like sound doctrine, the careful study of Scripture, the historic faith of the apostles, movements such as the spiritual formation movement, the rapidly spreading influencers' global ministries, the new apostolic reformation. These have radically altered the historic Christian faith into something that seeks mystical experience, that seeks this elevated awareness of God through emotion through contemplation and hearing directly from God aside from the scriptures side interesting note two of those movements the influencers global ministries and the new apostolic reformation both claim the year 2001 as they individually received new revelation from God and their revelation contradicts each other so which is it going to be all these movements that focus on mysticism, focus on feeling, and all of this is a rehashing of, of old heresies from the past. But all these erroneous movements accomplish is to trash and denigrate the exquisite, detailed beauty of something that is very, very important to us, and that is the New Covenant. These movements betray a sentimental Christianity that's all about how I feel about Jesus. Instead of Christ as the mediator of an official agreement that God has made to save your soul, to give you entrance into an eternal kingdom on earth, to love and to serve God and to enjoy Him and enjoy His pleasures and His delights forevermore. Emotionalism makes you believe that if you feel something on a mountaintop at a 24-hour event... That you're part of something. No, it's the new covenant that makes you part of something. The new covenant is an agreement between God and men. And because the new covenant is linked significantly to the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, that topic necessarily intersects with any look at the new covenant. You have to talk about the millennium. Now, I began our time last Sunday commenting that it comes as a surprise to many that the new covenant is not primarily about the church. That it's actually highly tied to the return of Christ. It's tied to the battle of Armageddon. It's tied to the setting up of Christ's kingdom on earth. And what we did last Sunday evening is we we stayed in the depths of despair by showing the fact that the kingdom of God on earth failed in the Old Testament time and time again. The historic chronological end of the Old Testament time is recorded in Ezra Nehemiah, concluded with Nehemiah, you remember, looking to the future since the present resetting of the kingdom of Israel failed. He prayed several times for God to remember him personally in the future, even as he was running around putting out spiritual fires and spiritual failure in Israel at the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's as if Nehemiah waves the white flag and says, this thing's going down. Lord, would you remember me at least? Would you pull me out of this? But we also gave a glimmer of hope that all while the kingdom of God was failing on earth because of the sin of mankind, the prophets were continually telling us all over the Old Testament, the kingdom is coming and the king is coming. So we sort of ended last time asking the question, what must be different to give success to a kingdom of God on earth? What has to change? Well, the people who would make up that kingdom must be given new hearts with which to serve God. That's what has to change. And that takes us to the grand central station of New Covenant texts in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. I'm going to take some time to delve deeply into this issue of the New Covenant, not just so we can have some theological knowledge. That doesn't do us any good all by itself. But the New Covenant is the reason you're going to heaven. And I think that's an important thing for us to learn. The new covenant is the reason you will spend all eternity, as the song we just sang said, in the arms of Christ. The new covenant is the reason. And I think it's important to know precisely what we're involved with. To go beyond, it's just all about Jesus. And so we're going to take some time to do a deep dive into this. But at the close of our time, I want to give you four reasons why this is good for your soul. Why your soul needs this information. This is not just theology to know stuff. This is theology to change your very heart and even the way you think. And so we'll end our time looking at four reasons why this is good for your soul. Now the situation and the timing of Jeremiah's word from God in Jeremiah 31 is significant. The southern kingdom of Judah was facing its darkest moment and I said we'd be around Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 32 verse 1 really gives us our setting here. Jeremiah 32 verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the military force of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah, the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. So what's happening here? Jeremiah is writing these very encouraging words in Jeremiah 31 right at the time when the Babylonians had Jerusalem under siege in 586 B.C. And it looks like Jeremiah is literally trapped in there himself. And he is receiving this word from the Lord. And so what Jeremiah 31 turns into is what one theologian calls a manifesto of hope. A manifesto of hope that continues to be a blessing to the nation of Israel and to all believers to this day. Now, the contemporary reader, the, the reader of Jeremiah's prophecy in the, in the time immediately following this, the events of Jeremiah 30 and 31, this siege of Jerusalem and, and the, the rescue that God's going to promise, it would seem to those readers, and it would make sense to think that the return from exile, the coming rescue of God, would be the primary fulfillment of this. Now, I already made the case last time that the return from exile was... Far from a reasonable fulfillment, though, of the predictions of the restoration of Israel. Now, what the restoration did, what the exile and the return from exile did, though, is that it proved that God can set up his nation again anytime he wants. It did give that proof. But as we're going to see in Jeremiah 31, the return from exile in the 5th in the century or so, it was an utter failure when compared to the glories of the actual glorious Restoration promised by Jeremiah. Listen to the introduction to God's intentions for Israel, even as Jerusalem is surrounded as they're under siege. Turn back a page or two to Jeremiah 30, verse 1. This is God's introduction to the promises He's about to make. The word which came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will return the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Yahweh says, I will also cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, broadly speaking, it becomes clear in Jeremiah 30 and 31 that this return of the fortunes of God's people doesn't occur in the near future. It's not going to occur soon. The end of Jeremiah 30 bears this out. Verse 24 of Jeremiah 30, the very last verse. Jeremiah 30, 24, The burning anger of Yahweh will not turn back until He is done and until He has established the intent of His heart in the last days. You will understand this. And then in chapter 31, you get phrases referring to those last days such as days are coming in those days days are coming after those days days are coming five or six occurrences of this reference back to Jeremiah 30:24 the last days and then we see near the beginning of Jeremiah 30 again in verse 5 Jeremiah 30 verse 5 the future deliverance for Israel won't happen until after a future day of tremendous trouble and sorrow A day which has never existed even till now, the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah 30, verse 5. For thus says Yahweh, We have heard a sound of trembling, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. What a picture! Men walking around protecting themselves because they're so vulnerable, so much pain and anguish in the world. And at the end of that terrible time of trouble, which Jesus calls in Matthew twenty four twenty one the great tribulation, only then is there a happy ending of deliverance. The last phrase of verse seven, but he will be saved from it. And now, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 30, God's promises to Israel come to full fruition. In Jeremiah 30, verse 10 through 24, we see the promise of regathering, the destruction of all the nations who come against Israel, the rebuilding of Israel's city, the rebuilding of a palace for the king, triumphant celebrations of thanksgiving, and Jeremiah 31, verse 21, the mighty one. And their mighty one shall be one of them. And their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near and he shall approach me. For who would dare to give his heart a security to approach me, declares Yahweh. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of Yahweh. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping storm. It will burst on the head of the wicked. And again, the burning anger of Yahweh will not turn back until he has done and until he is established. The intent of his heart, in the last days you will understand this. Now to drill down into Jeremiah 31, which is really our focus this evening, and the amazing restoration of Israel, we're going to go about three layers deep. And here's how this is going to work. First of all, I want to show you very briefly five gifts from the Lord. And then second, that fifth gift is going to turn into four blessings And those four blessings, the last one has 12 parts to it. And so we're going to drill down in more and more detail, kind of like sharpening the focus. Five gifts from the Lord up high. The fifth gift now divided into four blessings. And the fourth blessing has 12 parts to it. And I'll walk you through it. It'll be easy. First of all, five gifts from the Lord. Just very broadly here. Jeremiah 31. The first gift is the grace of God. The grace of God in Chapter 31, verses 2 through 6. Look at verse 2 with me. Thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its relief, Yahweh appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. What a picture. Yahweh appears from afar and he's he's calling to Israel and saying, I have loved you. And in the verses 4 through 6, he calls Israel a virgin. It indicates her purity and her holiness. And listen to this, God's intention to treat her as if she had never rebelled against him ever in all of history. That's his intention. That's grace to treat her as if no sin has ever been committed. That sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? The grace of God. There's a second gift. The worship of God. The worship of God in verses seven through fourteen. Verse 7, for thus says Yahweh, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the head of the nations. Make it heard, give praise, and say, O Yahweh, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And then verses eight through fourteen tells of the gathering of even the weakest of the Jews, that they'll be weeping with joy as they return. God declares that He's going to shout to the world. He's going to shout to the world that His people are coming home because He has ransomed them. Their mourning will be turned to joy. The young and the old will dance together. God's people will be intensely satisfied with God. The grace of God. The worship of God. There's a third gift. Joy from God. Joy from God. And we find this in verses 15-22. through Verse 15, thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah wailing and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says Yahweh, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares Yahweh, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Now this is recalling the use of the the city, the town of Ramah, as the staging area where the Babylonians would gather all the captives and get them ready for the trip to Babylonia. Back in, in first 605, then 597, and finally 586 B.C. And this was, of course, applied prophetically at the time of the birth of Christ when the baby boys in and around Bethlehem were killed in Herod's attempt to murder Jesus. But verse 16 says, Stop weeping! restoration has come the children are returning they're coming home it's the fourth gift satisfaction from god satisfaction from god verse 23 thus says yahweh of hosts the god of israel once again they will speak this word in the land of judah and in its cities when i return their fortunes yahweh bless you O abode of righteousness O holy hill And Judah and all its cities will inhabit it together, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I satisfy the weary soul and fill up every soul who wastes away. And then one more gift. Blessings from God. Now the blessings of God are found in verses 27 through 40. And I'm going to divide those blessings into four. Four blessings. The first blessing Massive repopulation. Massive repopulation. Verse 27, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. This is, this is God saying the people and even the animals are going to explode in multiplication. God's going to continue fulfilling His promise to Abraham that God's people will be like the sand of the seashore, be like the stars of the sky. Massive repopulation. It's the second blessing. Eternal security. Eternal security in verse 37. Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also reject all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. That as soon as mankind can fully explain the creation, that as soon as you can tell God, here's how you did it, then that's when he'll reject Israel. Massive repopulation, eternal security. Here's a third blessing permanent holiness. Permanent holiness. Beginning in verse 38, God is describing what the land will be like right after the Battle of Armageddon. I told you that the new covenant is tied to the Battle of Armageddon, but he declares that Jerusalem from then on will be perpetually holy, perpetually set aside for him. Verse 38, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the city will be rebuilt for Yahweh from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Garib, and it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to Yahweh. It will not be uprooted or pulled down anymore forever. You know, at various times in history when people have been making these assessments, Jerusalem has oftentimes been called the most dangerous place on earth. But God says there will come a day where that's never the case. It will always be holy to Him. Massive repopulation, eternal security, permanent holiness. And here's the fourth blessing And this is the point of the whole message tonight. Covenant provisions. Covenant provisions. And we're going to break the covenant provisions down into 12. Most of them are from Jeremiah, but we'll supply a few others with other texts. This is the core of God's promises concerning the new covenant. And and I believe with all of my heart that in the church of Jesus Christ, the new covenant is understood in such a narrow fashion as to make it all about us. And I want to show you that this is not the case whatsoever. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is to the new covenant what the Ten Commandments are to the old covenant. It is the core. It is the center, the central thought, the central feature. Verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know Yahweh for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares Yahweh for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Twelve provisions of the new covenant. This is why you're going to heaven and so this is important to us. The first provision it is specific to Israel. We have to start there. It is specific to Israel. Verse 31, this is specifically with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And there's no lack of clarity here. Just in case anyone believes that the church is the new Israel, this is very specific language to say with the ten tribes of the north and the two tribes of the south. I don't know how clearer God could be. Every Jew reading this text in the Old Testament times would understand this as ethnic Israel. And God's even promising the reunification of Israel and Judah by means of the New Covenant. So it's specific to Israel. There's a second provision. It's contrasted to Moses. It's contrasted to Moses. The New Covenant is presented in contrast. Verse 32, not like the covenant that God made at Sinai. There's a clear difference between the two and it's extremely theologically inappropriate to blend them into one big covenant of grace. They're different. They serve different purposes. Specific to Israel. Contrasted to Moses. There's a third provision. Fulfilled after tribulation. Fulfilled after tribulation. We've already mentioned this, but this covenant is brought in, verse 33, after those days. After which days? The time of Jacob's distress that we saw in chapter 30, verse 5. After the great tribulation. This is why, one of many, many reasons, the church cannot be the new Israel. We have not been through the great tribulation. Here's a fourth provision. Prepared for regathering. Prepared for regathering. The houses of Israel and Judah are reunited. They're gathered they're re, re-brought together. The, the point of the New Covenant is that this is how the reunited people of God will live in the land. The Mosaic Covenant does have something in common with the New Covenant in that the Mosaic Covenant was basically how Israel pre-cross was to live in the land. They failed in that one. The New Covenant is how Israel will live in the land. They will not fail because their hearts will be changed. Here's a fifth Provision. To my point, written on hearts. Written on hearts. The new covenant, verse 33, will be written on the hearts of the people instead of on tablets of stone. This is what is so beautiful, what's so amazing about the new covenant. It's characterized by an internal, natural yearning to obey God, to know God, to love God, to worship God. Why? Because you're indwelt by God. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's a sixth provision. Broadcast to the world. Broadcast to the world. Verse 33, They shall be My people. This won't be a secret. Israel will be publicly and globally identified as the people of God. Isaiah 61, nine helps us. Isaiah 61, nine says, Then their seed will be known among the nations and their offspring in the midst of the peoples, All who see them will recognize them because they are the seed whom Yahweh has blessed. Ezekiel 37.28 helps us. Ezekiel 37.28 says, The nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is God walking around the world, as it were, with Israel saying, this is my nation. This is them. There's a seventh provision, universal in knowledge. They'll be universal in knowledge. Verse 34 is is stunning. No one will need to tell his neighbor, let me tell you about God. No one will need to do that. It'll be a time of universal knowledge in which no one is ignorant of God, or if I could put it this way, atheism will be dead. Isaiah 11.9 says, The earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And I just, just stop for a moment and imagine this. All of you live in a neighborhood. All of you live, maybe if you live out in the country, you still have neighbors somewhere down the road. Can you imagine going and knocking on every door and every single person you come across, you can ask, how is your relationship with Yahweh? Oh, I love Him. Oh, Christ has been so good to me. Everybody. What a tremendous time. Universal in knowledge. Here's an eighth provision. The covenant is gracious in nature. It's gracious in nature. The new covenant has at its core, in verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The new covenant is built on forgiveness. It's built on the pardon of all of your sins. There's a ninth provision. Total in unity. It's total in unity. This is alluded to in Jeremiah, but said more directly in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37.22 And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Or if I could put it this way, Israel will be the truest and the godliest form of one nation under God, indivisible with Liberty and justice for all. There's a tenth provision. Perfect in relationship. Perfect in relationship. Ezekiel 37.23 They also will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their places of habitation in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they will be My people and I will be their God. Never again having anything between God and God and His people, perfect, unbroken communion and love. There's an 11th provision. Peace with God. Peace with God. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six says, I will cut a covenant of peace with them. Oh, and this is significant. This is significant because when God is forsaken and covenant treachery occurs, He has time and time again gone to war against His own nation to discipline them. And listen, so far, the current time of discipline against Israel has lasted 2,000 years. So when God spanks, he's not kidding around. But to be at peace with God, that's the covenant of all covenants. That's the covenant of all time. And speaking of all time, the 12th provision forever in the land, forever in the land. Ezekiel thirty seven twenty six continues, I will cut a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will give them the land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Now let me put this in perspective for you with some broad numbers. Israel first took possession of the promised land, not even all of it, but we'll generalize for our purposes about 1406 BC. That's when they first took possession of their land. The kingdom split in the 10th century and in 722 B.C. the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And since that time the Jews of the world have never all been gathered together in their own land. Even in today's Israel today's Israel only contains about 46% of the Jews in the world and it's not an easy time. All the surrounding nations around them want them dead. It's been 2,701 years or so and counting since Israel possessed their own land as a nation. So the idea of forever in the land can't be overstated. The people of God have known what waiting is beyond what any people ever has. Now the whole point of going into the new covenant is to show that the totality of these provisions can only be fulfilled in the coming kingdom. That's obvious from reading this. I don't know how anybody can read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and do anything other than see that this can't be fulfilled now. You have to spiritualize these provisions. You have to make them mean something that they don't mean. And this is why I broke it down into these these 12 provisions. So what is our current age about? The age we live in. We're in, we might call it the missionary age. We're in the age to bring people into that kingdom, to invite them to Christ so that they might be part of that kingdom that's coming, that they might be part of the new covenant kingdom. If these provisions are, are taken in their ordinary literal sense, the promises of the new covenant correspond exactly to the premillennial understanding of kingdom promises, exactly exactly. It's why it's discouraging when somebody says, well, you interpret the Bible as a premillennialist. No, I interpret the Bible and I became a premillennialist. That's what happens. This is why for those who believe that the kingdom of God is on earth now, they have to use the New Testament to attempt to reinterpret the Old Testament in some spiritualized fashion. Why? Because the Old Testament taken by itself would never suggest a, a metaphorical spiritual interpretation. It would never give you that. In fact, quite a few amillennialists, those who believe that the kingdom is now, they refer to the literal, ordinary sense of these passages, quote, as the Jewish interpretation, which they say is wrong according to the New Testament. So what is the teaching of the New Testament on the New Covenant? What does this have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? The Greek phrase translated New Covenant is used five times in the New Testament. There are some less precise references to the New Covenant, included in at least seven other occurrences. Hebrews 12.24 has an interesting case, a a specific, unique word. Jesus is called the mediator of a new covenant, literally means a recent or a young covenant. And what becomes abundantly clear in the New Testament, though, that, that is Prophesied in the Old Testament, such as in Isaiah 53, but much clearer, obviously, in the New Testament, is that the New Covenant is made possible by the sacrifice of Christ. That's what makes the difference. It's not just that God said, well, the Mosaic Covenant didn't work, let's try something new. This was always the plan. Christ was always the plan. The cross was always the plan. In fact, passages that deal with the Lord's Supper make this very clear connection. Matthew 26, 28 Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Mark 14, 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Luke twenty two twenty. this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Apostle Paul confirms this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. There are other passages that indicate the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, forgiveness of sins are made available by Christ's death. Super important. Romans 11.27 This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's what the new covenant is according to the New Testament. The taking away of your sins. Hebrews 10 beginning of verse 16 This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and on their mind I will write them. Then He says in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Christ is not only the sacrifice of the new covenant, He's the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one who introduces you to God and brings the two parties together. He's the one who joins holy God to unholy man by means of His free offering of Himself at the cross. The blessing of the new covenant It's secured on the basis of blood. The atonement made possible by Christ. Now I mentioned Romans 11.27 and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is very important because I don't want you to miss this. In the New Testament, the new covenant isn't suddenly devoid of and separated from the millennial kingdom. It's not suddenly a new version The verse just prior, Romans 11.26, states that when the new covenant comes fully to fruition, it will be when the Deliverer comes from Zion. In other words, when Christ is in Jerusalem, now the new covenant has come fully. The new covenant comes to full realization at the return of Christ. And this is totally consistent with the Old Testament teaching of the new covenant. It's interesting to me, one of the great defenders of amillennialism, Dr. Oswald Alice. he wrote an absolute tome, a a thick book defending amillennialism. And it was published in 1945, and it's called Prophecy and the Church. And he makes great attention to Romans 11, 25 and 26. And in this massive work, he never mentions verse 27 one time. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It literally stops the thought of Paul in mid-sentence and he doesn't even give it a mention. Why? Because when you take Romans 11, 25, 26, and 27 as a unit, you have connected in the New Testament salvation of national Israel, the return of Christ, and the new covenant. You have them tied in together. Or as we like to call it, premillennialism. There's only one passage that might provide any difficulty to the premillennial view and this difficulty vanishes if you just look at it carefully and it's worth taking a moment to look at. Let's go to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 8. and I'd like to show this to you just to show you that this might be the most difficult passage for us. Hebrews chapter 8 beginning in verse 8 and we'll just spend a moment on this that in verse 6, Christ is said to be the mediator of a better covenant. It's designed to be eternal. It's not temporary like the Mosaic covenant. It has better promises. Now, the contention by all millennialists and those who don't believe in the literal reign of Christ on earth is that this passage proves that the new covenant is in force completely right now. The kingdom is happening in this age. And if that's the case, then the church is the new Israel and we should be quiet. So here's the, the passage that they would claim this from. Verse 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. And this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and upon their hearts, I will write them and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, if this sounds familiar, basically, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The Mosaic Covenant is given the nickname the Old Covenant. Why? Because it's not new and it's not in force anymore. It's a contract that we're not a part of anymore. But if you look at this very carefully, nowhere in this passage is the New Covenant said to be with Israel as a nation, in force at this moment. It declares that the new covenant is made possible by Christ, but it doesn't say this is the complete fulfillment of the new covenant in all of its detail. In other words, the passage here is not teaching the timing of the new covenant. It's simply teaching that the new covenant replaces the old. And it certainly doesn't teach that the church is now the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I don't even know how you would do that. Is that the Baptists and the Methodists? How do you put that together? Now the obvious question you may be asking is Steve, you made a good point that the new covenant is not brought to fruition in this age, but we're here now and we seem to be enjoying the benefits of the new covenant. So why are we as mere Gentiles able to be saved? Well, there are clearly aspects of the new covenant active in precursor form or introductory form. We celebrate this every month in our church. 1 Corinthians 11.25 In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is a clear commemoration of the new covenant now. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says he's a minister of the new covenant. So how do we reconcile this? Great learned pre theologians of the past century saw two new covenants. Giants in the field such as Doctors John Walvoord, Lewis Sperry Chafer, and Charles Ryrie. One new covenant applicable to the church age and the fuller version applicable during the millennial kingdom specific to Israel. In fact, Charles Ryrie defends this view so robustly he takes an entire book chapter to defend his assessment that this is the case now i I gotta tell you i i am thankful that those men are already home in heaven so that they won't ever hear this message i shudder to disagree with them and they are great men of god i would prefer to soften it just a bit i don't see anything in scripture that ever says two new covenants I'm hesitant to identify two new covenants. And I don't think it's always helpful to try to reduce theological truth into a pithy statement or into one little canned summary. So here's what is true. What is true is that the complete fulfillment of the new covenant is clearly focused on Israel in the millennium. To deny that is to alter the new covenant completely. What else is true? Just like the day of Pentecost, certain indications of the coming kingdom are given Partly, in part, such as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to come. And yet Peter references Joel 2.28 in which the full orbed fulfillment of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all Jews in the coming kingdom is what Joel 2.28 ultimately is speaking of. But at Pentecost he says this is a taste. This is the beginning. What else do we know? The church is not Israel. What else do we know? The church benefits from certain provisions of the new covenant, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the law of God written on our hearts. What's the reason for this? It's so that we can fulfill Colossians one twenty eight to proclaim Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. I think the best explanation is given by a theologian named Ralph Alexander. He says that the new covenant was instituted with the death of Christ on the cross and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this is a great word. He says that the full appropriation of the new covenant by the nation of Israel is still future, as argued by Jeremiah 31. Appropriation is a good word. That for Israel as a nation, the new covenant blessings have not been fulfilled, not even close. Now the whole point of this is to see that the new covenant as revealed in the Old Testament concerns Israel and requires fulfillment in the coming kingdom. I think it's a shame that we make the new covenant just about me and about the church only. Oh God's plan is so much bigger than that. I gave you a lot of information and I promised you that I would give you four reasons why this is good for your soul. You need theology. It weaves itself into your heart and into your mind and it changes you in ways you don't even fathom until later. But I want to give you four reasons why this is good for your soul. The first reason is humility. Humility. A lack of meaningful connection to the past, a lack of meaningful connection to the future, makes for self-centered, professing Christians. The three movements I mentioned at the beginning of this message have much in common. And one thing they have in common is no connection to the history of the church and certainly no connection to the new covenant in Christ as revealed first in the Old Testament. These are simply movements of mysticism that see only one person and one time period as important, me and now. That's all Christ is about. It's about me and about now. This is good for your soul in terms of humility. Here's a second reason this is good for your soul worship. Worship. Understanding the new covenant in all its ancient prediction and future fulfillment places you properly as in one age of God's plan, not the age one age it helps you avoid the theological error of making faith in christ all about me listen over the years i've heard a lot of preaching in the new testament i love new testament preaching but more often than not the new testament is preached as if the old testament doesn't exist as if matthew 1 1 is where god's revelation began the new covenant didn't just parachute down out of heaven in the gospel of matthew It has a rich history of prophetic promises and the future fulfillment yet to be. The point is, is when you place yourself rightly as a little tiny dot on the full spectrum of God's vast, massive scheme of the new covenant, you become small and God becomes big and nothing becomes about you. Everything becomes about him. And when God becomes big and you become small, that is the very definition of increasing your worship. There's a third reason this is good for your soul, and I'll call this one eagerness. Eagerness. We we mentioned this a bit last week. But eagerness, this idea of understanding the true full orb nature of the new covenant, it places the proper future hope on your current celebration of the Lord's table. That when you receive communion, it, it has its proper place. When you receive communion, remember that Jesus specifically said that he would not partake of this himself until he comes in what? In his kingdom. Luke 22:16 and 18 what Jesus specifically said is that he would not eat the Passover meal he shared which for the church age becomes the Lord's table quote until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke 22:18 he would not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. The apostle Paul connected the Lord's table to the future coming of Christ that we remember his death until he comes. You understand that the Lord's table is not about the church age as much as it is looking back to the cross and looking forward to the kingdom. The Lord's table is a spiritual revitalization, a spiritual nourishment to get us from the cross to the kingdom. It is what the book of Psalms calls going from strength to strength. Here's a fourth benefit, a fourth reason this is good for your soul. And that is gratitude. Gratitude. I want you to try to comprehend this. In 586 B.C. The armies of Babylon had Jerusalem surrounded. Israel had committed countless repetitions of covenant treachery against God and was about to pay a price in severe discipline. And as the vicious Chaldean soldiers of the Babylonian army were chomping at the bit to murder and capture Jews, and the Chaldeans were raised as boys to kill, God was telling Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And in God's graciousness, He would graft into, He would include into that blessing Gentiles from all over the world. Now I want you to think about when you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you came to saving faith, when you exercised this faith in Jesus, the Son of God, this was made possible because in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem is about to be conquered, God told Jeremiah, who's in hiding for his life, Behold, days are coming when I will cut a new covenant. The New Covenant did not originate in the church where you first heard the gospel. The New Covenant did not originate with the Great Reformation. The New Covenant did not originate with the writing of the New Testament. The New Covenant did not originate with the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ. The New Covenant originated in the mind and plan of God going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God cursed mankind, He also cursed Satan In Genesis 3.15, he told Satan that someday one would come who would defeat him and that defeat would happen at the cross. And the cross is the center of what? The new covenant. You are part of something so vast, so big, so marvelous, so historic, so future. It should inspire gratitude that God in the midst of this grand plan called the New Covenant, really originating with the very first promises of a Savior, predicted in detail at the time of the attack of the Babylonians, inaugurated and set into motion at the cross, and with the full and glorious fullness yet to come, that in all that, God included you. That should be overwhelming to you. The new covenant that is specific to Israel, that is contrasted to Moses, fulfilled after tribulation, prepared for regathering, written on hearts, broadcast to the world, universal in knowledge, gracious in nature, total in unity, perfect in relationship, at peace with God, forever in the land. When all of that happens, you get to be there. How can anyone say, I made a decision to come to God? I hope that that knowledge gives you humility and worship and eagerness and gratitude. And you think about this, in that vast, grand scheme, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator and the sacrifice of the new covenant knows your name and has promised each one of you individually that he holds you in his hand until such day as he comes into his kingdom and he can safely open that hand For you to come out. Every one of you. I I can't wrap my mind around that. I hope that the new covenant inspires humility. And inspires worship and eagerness and gratitude. Our father we can do nothing more than to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That thousands and thousands of years ago when the curse of sin entered creation, you made Satan a promise that a Savior was coming who would crush Him. And Satan would be crushed at the cross. And that before the foundation of the world, before you ever created the earth and the universe, the sea and the land and the creatures and mankind, before you ever created any of that, before the foundation of the world, in love, you chose us. And the new covenant is the means by which we will enter into a kingdom more glorious than we can possibly imagine. May you light our hearts afire and aflame with that hope and that anticipation until we see Christ and until he comes. Amen.